everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we dive into how Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, as best we can tell, and from my 30 years of experience, invest. <laughs> Look at all those caveats. We're looking at the tagline here. We're working on it. It's been two years. But you guys um, get the general idea. Yeah, we are talking about value investing and about how Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett value invest and how my dad, Phil Town, value invests. You know, I really like the word value invest as a, as a kind of a generic uh, name for what we do. And then oh, I really- there's, there's a but, isn't there? Yeah, I really don't like the name value invest because so many investors are categorized as value investors who don't invest the way we do and who don't invest the way Buffett and Munger do. Did you know that? What? Yeah. What? what, uh, what? Hmm? <laughs> That's right. Tell me. Tell me about that quickly, well, because we're talking about technical indicators, which but tell is me completely off the reservation when it comes to value investing. Let me tell yeah. you. Yeah. So appropriately, we should say that value investing originated with Ben Graham in 1930s with a book called Security Analysis that he wrote as a university professor at Columbia with David Dodd, another university professor there. And it has continued to be the Bible of value investing. And what it basically tries to teach is how to use the fundamentals of a company, the accounting uh, numbers, to determine um, the value of the business and then buy it for substantially less than that. That's Ben Graham 101. But the way he did it, is classic value investing, and that is to buy quite a large number. Ben would buy between 100 and 200 companies, quite a large number of companies that were very cheap on a value basis without regard to whether they were a wonderful business or not. Oh, see, okay, so I thought what you were gonna say is that he, I mean, I don't know what I thought you were going to say. Basically, what I think of as value investing is the way Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett do it. And what I think of as what Ben Graham did, which was the precursor to value investing, I think of that as like, well, maybe nobody else calls it that, but I think of it as cigar butt investing. And that's fair enough. Have I just like invented my own lexicon? Am I the only one who thinks about it like that? Because I just think there's so many people, Warren Buffett has made this style of investing so famous and it's so synonymous with him. Synonymous is the wrong literal word, but you know what I mean? Closely synonymous with him that, and he calls it value investing. So I guess I sort of imagine the, the other version, the older version as like not quite value investing. And Maybe I, I, that's not technically accurate. There's probably an evolution here, um, but I think an awful lot of quote value investors buy a large number of stocks that they think are cheap and they don't particularly worry about the quality of the company per se. Oh, really? And they and like now, today, in 2018, they call themselves value investors. Yeah. Now, oh, I wasn't aware of that. Now, the, there are very few investors that do it the way Ben Graham did it because it's almost impossible to find 200 companies that would be available at the price that Graham was paying. So Graham's way of investing is often called net-net. Um, it's, it's essentially you're, you're looking at a price less than working capital. 
essentially just saying when you take the cash of the company, subtract the debt, right? Just the cash of the company and subtract the debt, um, what you have left there, buy the company cheaper than that. And it's you can do that during a, a depression and a world war. Very difficult to do that during times of, of an expanding economy that we've been in ever since World War II. So mm. those deals don't exist anymore. And and when Buffett in, made the transition to what we would, I think, correctly call value investing today, um, he what he added to this was that the company should be a wonderful business, and that you should hold it for a long, long time, maybe forever. What does he mean? What does he mean by wonderful business? Um, Buffett means a business that he sometimes uses the word business franchise that they have a niche that they can defend aggressively. As you know, what Charlie says, right about a moat. Um, that it's a durable competitive advantage. That's what they mean by a wonderful business, that it has this extraordinary, durable competitive advantage that the company has such good management that they keep enlarging that durable competitive advantage every year. Hmm. And it gets more durable and a bigger advantage. So a Coca-Cola-like advantage. Um, that's what they call wonderful. Ben didn't particularly care about how wonderful it was. He just wanted to buy it super cheap, cheaper than the cash in the company. So are you saying that these people who follow that sort of style now don't also don't care if it's a wonderful business, if it has a moat, if it has good management, if it, if they truly understand it? I would say most value investors today who would be not Warren Buffett style, right? Highly Buffett style and Munger style, my style, what I hope is your style, are highly focused. We're talking about you know 70 or 80% of our portfolio in our top 10 positions, right? So people who uh, are often called value investors tend to be much more diversified, owning maybe uh, 1% of their portfolio in a single company, 100 stocks, 50 stocks, 200 stocks. Um, but I, I think they try very hard to get reasonably decent companies. It's just that they don't have to get it right because they're so, quote, over diversified that a few losers here and there wouldn't matter. To Buffett, mm -hmm. it would matter a lot, right? If you've got 10% of your entire net worth in Apple computer, it matters a lot whether it succeeds or fails. Okay. So how about these people who call themselves value investors yet are not Buffett-style value investors? Do they use these technical indicators at all or are they still like, no, 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 that stuff is all fake and clouds and... And we can't rely on any of that stuff. I would say the preponderance by by that I mean the great majority are going to argue that this is soothsaying cloud watching and basically okay. useless. So they're kind of they're in line with the Buffett thing. Yeah. Buffett adds this additional protection, and then probably because of that additional protection, finds it much harder to find companies to buy, and therefore owns far fewer companies, but feel safer doing so. Yep. Yep. I, I would agree. Also, there's another big distinction, and that is that, quote, you know, diversified value investors tend to not stay in companies forever. Um, mm. These companies, they hope, go up to their intrinsic value from the on-sale price they bought it at, and then they get rid of it and move on. And these, these people are almost all fund managers. They're almost all trying to beat the index. And I would say, by large, uh, by and large, they don't massively beat the index. I think value investors have a bit of a better, better track record than investors who just bank on Facebook going up, but not a lot better track record. 
right? It's just the Buffets of the world. It's the Buffets and the Mungers and the Ruains and guys like that, Perlmans that are not Perlmans, um, Rick Guerin, who really restrict their choices for buying companies and know a lot about those companies and watch them and and own them for the long term. And I think that's where the big returns come from. Charlie said, you you change 15 investments in Berkshire, you don't have that rate of return at all. You change 15 investments and you don't have that rate of return. In other words, Berkshire, let's say, is ballpark average 20% a year mm -hmm. um, growth rate. Charlie's saying if you remove just 15 companies from their investment portfolio, you would have a market return at the market. Do you mean over their entire investing career or do you yep. mean right now? No, over their entire investing career. Oh, that makes more sense. Okay. So I you was take, thinking, yeah, you, they probably only own 15 companies. So <laughs> yeah, if you change those, you're right. That would make a huge difference. Um, over the entire time that they've been doing it. Yeah, that right. would be. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's actually really saying something very important because people who diversify across 100 companies, they could never say that. There is there are no 15 companies that which even had any significant impact on their portfolio, almost certainly because they don't own enough of them to have an impact. And as a result of not owning um, a very small number of businesses that you hope do well, you own a large number of, let's say, reasonably good businesses. Hey, man, I'm sorry, but you are the market. You just became the S&P 100. Well, yeah. yeah. So for those of us trying to track those people in very, <laughs> uh, I don't know the right word. Uh, what, to clone them? No, 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 no. Just to like keep tabs on them. Right, to keep tabs. <laughs> I like to clone, but you can call it keep tabs. Oh, no, no, no. I thought you were talking about the people who own a huge number of companies and are essentially the S&P 500. I am. And okay. I would I would clone some of their stuff. You would, even though they own a whole bunch of companies and you only want to own a couple? Yeah, just because of this. I'm gonna many of these people are really good investors, okay? They 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 know a good company from a, a bad company. Mm -hmm. Um and the fact that they don't particularly beat the market in the long run isn't uh because they don't know a good company from a bad company, it's because they over diversify. Mm -hmm. And so the that doesn't mean they're not picking some real good ones in there. So figure out, figure it like this. You can look at 8,000 companies across North America, or you could look at the ones this guy's buying. There's only 100 of them. Now take that list and find the handful that are really good that you really understand. Mm -hmm. That's hard. But it's, hard, it's less hard than looking at 8,000. Yes, that's true. So that's true. Anything you can do that will reduce the number of companies you're looking at to those which are in your circle of competence, right? They're in your wheelhouse. Um, and knowing that somebody halfway decent is buying those companies is really useful. Um, I love to clone. And Charlie Munger loves us to clone. Charlie has said that, you know, that's one of uh, the very best ways. There's, he said there's three ways. I don't know if I ever told you this. Let's try this out. Charlie said there's three ways to build a really great portfolio based on what other people are doing. Oh, no, we have not talked about that. We're supposed to talk about technical indicators. But All right, not. tell me. Okay. Yeah, I mean, everybody right now is going, shut up about technical indicators because we want to know what Charlie said. I guarantee you. 
So Everybody right is. now is going, you guys never stay on topic. Danielle is trying so hard to make this thing happen just to get through them so that we don't have to go another six weeks without talking about them. But you guys, you're all right, because I want to hear about the portfolio secrets from Charlie Munger. So I'm throwing those things out. Dad, what are the portfolio secrets from Charlie Munger? Well, first off, I had to tell you where I found this out, because this is cool stuff. This comes from, <laughs> this comes from, so I've, you, you, we've talked about Monash Pabrai in the past. Right? I'm sorry. You're just so excited. Okay. We've talked about Monish in the past, who I love and who I think is one of the highest integrity, most brilliant money managers in the world, and a dyed-in-the-wool, rule-one type investor, and mm-hmm. and who um, who had lunch with Charlie. Mm-hmm. And at the lunch, Monash asked Charlie, if he had any like really great secrets about how to make a fantastic portfolio over time, stuff he hadn't told anybody. And Charlie goes, yeah, <laughs> which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I got one. I got three, actually. He said, um, first. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold what? on. So he tells Monish stuff he's never told anyone. And then Monish goes out and tells you and everyone? I, I, he didn't tell me directly. Monish just put it on a YouTube video and spit it out there. Oh, okay. All right. it, was on a, it was an interview with somebody, I forget who, that he, he talked about this. And it was brilliant. Okay. Right. So part of so it we already number one. know. Number, number one, one, we already know. Clone really good investors. Okay. So we copy the group. best investors. So when they go into something, if you can find out that they're going into that thing, they're buying into it. That's a huge, huge advantage. It's like having one of the best investors in the world call you up and say, hey, uh, Danielle, I'm buying uh, Apple Computer. I'm buying a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. So you told me that and we put it in our book, Invested, and we said we call them our gurus, the investors that we look to who we think are doing a great job out there. And we can see actually what companies they're buying because they have to publicly file with the SEC what companies they're buying. Right. So- that's a great way to do it. Check that box. And I actually didn't know that Charlie was all gung-ho on that until Monash had lunch with him and had that little interview. Because uh-huh. I've heard Warren Buffett talk about that. I've heard Prem Watsa in Canada talk about it. Obviously, Monash is a huge cloner, loves to talk about it. But Charlie, never a word that I ever heard. Okay, mm-hmm. so copy other great investors. Number two, buy cannibals. Buy cannibals. Cannibals. So cannibal companies, companies cannibal that companies. are cannibals. Yes, companies that are cannibals, which is probably not exactly the right word, but it's close enough. It's companies that are eating themselves. I was wondering if you were going to say eating themselves or eating other companies. They're eating themselves. So that's probably not cannibal. Whatever that is, oh. <laughs> probably a really terrible thing. <laughs> probably some terrible word for that. It is. Um, I'm sure. Um, how are they eating themselves? They are taking excess free cash, noticing that their stock price is significantly underpriced relative to the value, and then they're taking the cash out of their equity and buying their own stock. And when, oh. they, when they do that, they're retiring big blocks of stock. So, for example... Apple has thought itself to be substantially underpriced for quite some time and has been buying back its own stock, particularly urged on by several big investors. And since 2013, 
it's eaten 20% of its own company. And what that means is that investors who own the stock in 2013 now own 20% more of the company than they did then without having to spend another nickel, right? IBM from 1996 is an aggressive cannibal, it still is. Um, it bought back in a 20-year period, it bought back 50% of its stock. So if you own that company in 1996, by 2016, you had effectively doubled the amount of ownership that you have. Wow. Wow. I know. It's astonishing what that'll do for you. Yeah. Um, right? Particularly since the price of Apple or IBM, let's say, went from, I don't know, I'm ballparking it, but I could get it exactly, actually. Well, I mean, that's what I was, so the, what the result of that is the price goes up because you own then more. And so people want to own a larger chunk and they're aware that it's what you're, what they're purchasing is more than what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've removed slices of the pizza, right? I mean, you, you've still got exactly. the same size pie, but the price per share goes up. So um, back in uh, 2016, IBM was at, um, let's see, about halfway through the year, it was about 150 uh, per share. And you go back to 1996, Let's see what that looks like. Uh, it's working on it here. Hang on. So you go back, you look, you can see when these buybacks happen and that they then have some sort of result. Like, is that is that worth going back and looking at, actually? Well, I think it is. If you were in 1996, I, my chart isn't going back quite that far. It goes back to uh, 1998. <clears throat> but in 1998, the price was 50, uh, roughly 50 bucks a share. And today it's 151. And you own twice as many shares. So not only has the price moved up triple to the original price or doubled in a half, but you also doubled the amount you actually own of the company. So um, trying to figure out what that means. I mean, you're still, you know what, in, in a weird way, it doesn't mean anything like I just implied now that I'm thinking about it, because all you own are the number of shares you own. So if you right. have 100 I mean, shares. You've been you, seeing, yeah, you've been seeing for a while that it's like not, that you keep on owning more, but it doesn't actually It doesn't really actually feel you. like that, right. But the right. stock price has been driven up because there's less. That's the part that affects you. Right, that's the part that affects you. Exactly. So, um, buybacks, those are cannibals. That's the second thing. Okay. And then the third thing is that Charlie says you want to buy companies which are spinning off chunks of their business. Oh. So not long ago, um, Monash and Guy Spear bought Fiat Chrysler. Um, and I looked at it really hard and I couldn't quite see it. Those guys are just smarter than me. And we just stick to our guns and realize you don't have to be a genius to do this. You just have to be patient until stuff gets into your wheelhouse. So I just couldn't quite see it. They're not smarter it. than you. They're yeah. just maybe a little more interested in car companies. That's all. Why, thank you, honey. It's so sweet. They're, they're not. I'm going to tell Guy that next time I see him. There you go. <laughs> so uh, the, the impact of this uh, purchase was, or the reason for the, one reason for the purchase was that Fiat intended to spin off Ferrari, which is its own huge brand worldwide. 
And when you get a spinoff, what's so cool about this is let's say you bought the Fiat Chrysler stock at $8 a share. And then over the time period while they were cranking up to, to spin this off, the stock price went to 16 okay? Mm. They still own Fiat Chrysler. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, they still own uh, Ferrari. Then they spun off Ferrari at a value per share of about six bucks, right? And the stock price- So then let's just talk about the mechanics here for a second. So if I own Fiat Chrysler, if I own one share of Fiat Chrysler Mm -hmm. and then do this spinoff, what Mm -hmm. happens then is that I also own, as just by operation of law, own some number of shares of the new spinoff based right. on whatever that situation is where they decide that like, oh, like one share then equates to, I don't know, one share maybe of. Often of, it does equate to one share actually in this. Often fiat, it's one-to-one, but sometimes it's a little different. In this particular case, it actually wasn't. I think I got the ratio wrong. I think it was that you got Fiat Chrysler shares. Um, you got 10 shares for every Sorry, you got one tenth of a share for every share of Fiat Chrysler that you own. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense. That makes if you sense. got ten, if you so you get one. So if you tenth. own ten shares of Fiat Chrysler, you would get one share of Ferrari. One share of Ferrari, and that share went public at forty dollars. Like the starting price of Ferrari was forty dollars. Ballpark, yeah. Okay. But I'm wasn't not. the price of Fiat Chrysler sixteen? It is. So it takes 10 shares of the 10 shares that you had of, uh, sorry, the (laughs) one tenth share that you have of Ferrari. When you add them all, when you when you put them together, the one tenth share that you got for one share of Fiat is worth four dollars. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Okay. So effectively, they're giving you four dollars of value, and so right after they did that, the stock price dropped from sixteen, let's say, down to twelve, to reflect the move, the, the essentially the shift of four dollars of value over to another company. Yeah. Okay. All right. But then Fiat Chrysler stock went up, and now it's up in the twenties, I think, without Ferrari, mm. and the Ferrari stock, I think, is at eighty or something. Whoa. Yeah. So both of these companies did better separated than they were doing together. Which is probably why the company did that. That's why they did <laughs> that, that situation. And it's why Charlie said, look for spinoffs. Um, another, a, that a real, is interesting. That we cool? have not really talked about that. I remember when it happened and you, I think maybe it was right after you, it had happened and you were telling me about it. I was Where moaning was about it. I'm yeah, sure. we were sitting in Florida. You were playing polo. And, <laughs> I was like, ah. And you're like, let me tell you about this thing that I checked out. <laughs> I didn't do. Watch this one. Yeah. Yep. But so, that was very interesting. And, and I actually haven't thought about it since then. So it's cool to hear about it in the context now of years later, knowing a little bit outcome. more about investing. Yeah. about that kind of uh, searching for those kinds of situations could be really helpful. Now, I want to give you guys a good book to read. Please. This is a good book. You really should read this, Danielle. This is written by Joel Greenblatt. G-R-E-E-N-B-L-A-T-T. Name, please. Joel. Joel. No, no. Name of the book. Oh, name of the book is um, Hugh 
can be a stock market genius. Oh, yeah, I've seen that book. Do I you have the can... name right? I think I do. That Joel Greenblatt wrote that? Well, let me see. <laughs> I think I actually have that on my shelf somewhere. Not sure I've ever opened it. Shocker of all shockers. I'd be really embarrassed if this isn't Joel's book. Yeah, thank goodness. Oh, good. <laughs> it wasn't totally positive. <laughs> yeah. So Joel Greenblatt, you can be a stock market genius. Uncover the secret hiding places of stock market profits. Fabulous. Now, to put this book in context, when Joel wrote this, this, is, this book is uh, over 20 years old. Oh, when, I didn't know it was that old. Yeah, wow. When he wrote this, he was making about 50% a year hmm. running a fund. Jeez. Oh, he was hmm. just killing it. Um, since that time, he has uh, sort of just chilled out. He's a professor, I think, uh, sometimes profit, Columbia. He's a really famous guy and a really super investor. Doesn't, doesn't work at it like he used to. But this book is fantastic, and you really need to read it. And focus on the chunk of it that's written about spinoffs, because Joel loves these spinoffs. Oh, interesting. Okay. And they have been the source of a lot of great success, um, because often a company that spins off a subsidiary, particularly when that company's stock is undervalued already, they're unlocking value both in the parent company and in the spinoff company, mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. get the spinoff company for free. So, yeah, that's amazing. Man, that's really a double whammy, right? When you're, when you're getting it from a company that's already on sale. So I would strongly urge you to look at these three things. Charlie said, basically, if you were to be a, a professional fund manager and you wanted to be really successful, these three things would create the basis of your great success running somebody else's money. How would one seek out upcoming spinoff opportunities? Is it just through the news? No, well, yeah, but you got to be all over the news to find it all. So like many of these things, you would Google spinoffs website. And you'll find a website called stockspinoffs.com. And you click on that little guy right there. And you have an entire website for free dedicated to spinoffs that are going on where people are writing about it. So here's uh, La Quinta is spinning off a chunk of their hotel chain. Um, you know, just it's just lots. That's amazing. There's don't, a website don't you for love every bloody thing in investing. It is the craziest thing. And it's so helpful. And it's so amazing to me that we live in this world <laughs> where literally when you were like, what? 20 whenever you would have maybe started doing investing stuff when i was your age i don't know if it was when i you were i'm gonna say that you had to go to the library to look up annual yeah. reports and stuff was that true? to the library was that true when you were 35 um i was uh, whatever that was 33 i think okay yeah, about 33 and i just remember my good friend i mean you know uh these this family um michael and linda and they're great friends and michael is way into this and comes from a fairly wealthy family, and he would pay Value Line, I think it was $50,000 a year. What? To get oh the data. Yeah, so I went to the library. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I could library. see somebody who is a professional 
paying something like that, but like a personal, like a private person, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, look You've at the change in value. you a lot of money to make that worthwhile. And here's what's I know. really And crazy. by the way, here we are complaining. I constantly am complaining to myself in my own head of the cost of the Wall Street Journal and like the occasional paid website that I pay for because they have good info. And I'm just like, oh, all grumbly about it. Exactly. And by the way, Value Line remains, you know, just the the really creme de la creme of, of data. Um very focused on you know on a smaller number of companies than the eleven thousand that are running around North America, but still really good. And um, I think they're a thousand dollars now. So compare mm-hmm. that to nineteen eighty one when fifty thousand dollars is a hundred thousand dollars in today's dollars, compared to one thousand dollars as a kind of a a guideline on the um, democratization of information. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is. I mean, to me, this is as, as astonishing as the printing press in terms of the of the democratization of knowledge. Um, I you know, agree. I mean, I mean, the more the more that the more I get. Uh, the thing is, like this world is not accessible to many of us. Like people listening are not included in that because you guys now know about this stuff. But back when I did not know about this, I had no clue that there was this whole world of information. And now that I'm seeing it and engaging with it and realizing that, yes, it is worth paying for and there's so much that's free and there's like incredible stuff. If you um, if you pay like really a small amount of money, as you're just saying, um, it's just amazing. Like, let's take a minute <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and be and be thankful and be, and be thankful. grateful for this. Yeah. It's amazing. It's stunning. And honestly, the way that information is conveyed from people who know it to people who don't is almost medieval. I mean, when you think about it, it's like right now we've got some guys taking timber off of one of our properties. And we went out and talked to them the other day to see who's driving these huge machines like out of Avatar, right? I mean, I've almost felt like Mm. the really bad guys in Avatar. And, (laughs) you know, these huge bulldozers and these huge machines that the wheels all go different directions. I don't know. And obviously watching these guys zoom around in the forest and ripping trees and do it, they really have to know what they're doing. And yeah. I'm pretty sure there's not like a trade school where you go and learn this. And so I asked one of the guys who owns it, how did he learn? And he was, well, I learned from my dad. Really? Yeah. Oh, and, that's sweet. And sure enough, I pull, I one of the guys in, on another crew, I go over there and he gets out. He's a young guy. And I said, so how did you learn this? He says, oh, I learned from my dad. I said, who's your dad? Wow. Oh, that's my dad over there <laughs> you were talking to. <laughs> and then the other guy in the other cab was his cousin. Okay. And so I, I asked his dad again, like, how do you get the kids where, I mean, this is $300,000 machinery. You can't just let them go break it. He said, well, we let them come out on weekends when, you know, you can go slower and, we're not under so much time pressure because the mills aren't open and we let them get up to speed. But my point is, unless you've got a dad or an uncle who's in that business, you're probably not going to learn that skill set. Or a mother or an aunt. I possibly, and I mean, more and more, um, you know, you would expect that. So here's what I'm thinking. 
that's where we're at right here with this investing education is that you learn because your father knows it. And I learned because I got lucky and apprenticed to a guy, <laughs> right? Buffett yeah. learned because he got lucky and went to school with a guy who later let him apprentice to him. Hmm. I mean, it's just, wow, we're in the medieval stone age when it comes to actually passing well, this information along. But Buffett also had a father who was a stockbroker. Buffett's he father was, was a it, stockbroker. I mean, just at the meeting, he was talking about, I think he was 10 or 11 years old when he made his first stock purchase. Exactly. And Charlie Munger's grandfather was a or father or grandfather was a judge and, and loved investing and got involved in investing. Yeah. You, you and don't you know the only the only way Buffett was able to do that as a kid was because his father was a stockbroker and he could just say to his dad, "Hey, Dad, can you go to?" No kid would have been able to do that no. back then. No, and and it doesn't just. I mean, I remember very well your grandfather trying to get me interested in this sort of thing, just looking at Chevron oil stock prices in the newspaper because he worked for Chevron Oil and he had some stock in Chevron, and but my dad didn't know anything about it. So he yeah. couldn't answer any questions. I didn't even know what questions to ask. And of course, I'm looking at this really oh, horrible Oh, welcome to newspaper. my world, Dad, where I started out not knowing what <laughs> questions to ask. See, it's a real, do you, I love that you said that. Do you see what a major, major wall that is? Yeah, yeah. When you don't even, you have somebody in front of you who knows stuff and you don't know how to get it out of them. Right. You just literally don't know how. Thus, the apprenticeship. And right now, yeah. that's what we have. We have apprenticeships. And it takes a while, doesn't it? I mean, we've been at this for it takes a while. once a week for about 45 minutes for pushing. I thought you were going to say for about 45 years. <laughs> no, not that long. <laughs> Just the last couple of years. But the questions, you're now really getting comfortable and you're making good investments. And I'm thinking this is to a place where this will probably be a lifetime practice for you. But Definitely. That's, that doesn't happen overnight. It take, It's a process that you've gone through where I'm standing by you this whole way totally. to kind of get you there, which just seems very apprentice-like to me, which is, of course, it how is. I learned as well. I spent a year as an apprentice. It is so, very apprentice-like, and yeah. you're exactly right. It has taken a while. It has taken several years, and I feel I feel confident I feel like there's a lot to know still, but good Lord, there's just no comparison to how I felt. Uh, there's no comparison in what I know, but even more importantly to me, there's no comparison in how I feel from a couple of years ago. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest something to everybody who's listening, that um, you, you have more tools now than I had and more tools even than when Danielle started. And one of those tools is the newsletter that Danielle has created on her website um, at invested, uh, sorry, at uh, danieltown.com. Um, and the newsletter, I will tell you from having a number of people read it who are our students, is simply fantastic. And in particular, when my brother, your uncle, who's an extremely good investor, says this is really, really good, he means Whoa. it's really, really good. Thanks, so, Dad. That's really nice of you to mention. I, I just read that. your latest newsletter, and I'm telling you, it is just fantastic about the Buffett um, uh, weekend. And I, I just really strongly recommend you guys read it. It doesn't take very long. It only comes out once a month, so uh, you're not going to be inundated. Um, and I would strongly urge you get on the list. 
Well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, it's it's really fun. It's I want it to be great content, not too often, and um, and just really giving a good sense of what investing practice looks like and, and I, resources. And I think what you guys have learned here on the podcast is that Danielle, as an apprentice, is a really good screener for information that's going right through unchallenged. And as a result, what she puts together, I think, is some of the finest writing about how to invest that anybody's ever done. And that includes the book Invested, and that includes her newsletter. So I'm going to just encourage you guys, if you want, uh, to, to sort of be able to look over the shoulder of someone who's a very, very attentive apprentice, then that's a great place to go. Oh, Dad, we didn't plan this at all, and I feel very touched that you're <laughs> oh, bringing it all up. And Thank I you. think on that, we should just say that next week we will talk about the <laughs> MACD and stochastics and finish up this little detour we're making into technical trading so you guys will know that it exists. Uh, so my apologies for not getting back on that, but I thought the uh, information about Charlie was pretty important. I did too. And you know, I have a theory why it's so difficult for us to finish this technical indicator thing. It's because we really don't care. We really don't care. It's not, much. it's not important. We're it's doing a side it. Show. It was something you brought up and it was interesting and weird. And, and yet like we just keep somehow like not getting through it. So, I know it. and yet I want to do it. And, and part of the reason is, because, I do too. you know, when, if we ever get around to talking about options or trading or anything like that, to the other kinds of things that Buffett is very, very good at, um, then this stuff will kind of kick in, but not yet. And so we'll just kind of finish this up next week and uh, move I on. I was at your workshop, uh, I guess last month, and somebody, as they always do, said to me, when are you going to start learning options? Because that's like a huge thing that you teach and it's incredible. And, and I was like, you know what? Actually, I can almost think maybe I would do something like that. Like, <laughs> what what a maybe, journey that's been to that point. Uh, yeah, no kidding. No so, kidding. yes. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, we'll get there. So, until then. All right. Time to go Thanks, play. Thanks, everybody. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play. <laughs>